You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey guys, Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist here. We had a special request from one of our fireflies who is currently out serving an LDS mission and asked us to discuss creation ex nihilo. So if you're listening, Jeremy, this is for you. To be honest, when I was a member of the church, I didn't think creation ex nihilo versus creation ex materia was that big of a deal. I didn't consider it a make it or break it doctrine when it came to deciding between Mormonism or evangelical Christianity. However, in recent years, I made friends with another young missionary who convinced me that the distinction is actually pretty important because it trickles down and plays a role in all our theological differences. So without further ado, let's get into it. Let me ask you a question first here, Matthew. Um, was creation ex materia a big deal to you as a Latter-day Saint? Did you think Orthodox Christianity was missing out big time by not believing in it? It wasn't something that I thought was a major part of my testimony or my faith, but I found it to be something that I thought was very fascinating. And it felt kind of like a piece of hidden knowledge or something that is part of the great apostasy that had been kind of lost over the centuries. So uh, one of the chapters in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 131, that's kind of where part of this doctrine of, you know, uh, creation out of out of matter rather than out of nothing. Uh, it's kind of par- partially tied to that. Uh, in verse 7 in DNC 131, it says, there is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by pure eyes. We cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. So that there's this idea that in LDS thought that everything that exists, whether spirit or material, physical, it's all made of matter. And so I found that kind of interesting to me as, as an engineering student when I was still preparing for my mission and coming home from my mission. I thought, oh, that's neat. That kind of like obeys the laws of thermodynamics because in the laws of thermodynamics, you can't create something from nothing and you can't really destroy something. You can just break things down or combine them and change them in different forms. So it kind of made sense to me in my brain that way. So I thought that kind of was interesting to me in an intellectual fashion. But in terms of my testimony, I don't think that was really a core part of my faith, but I did find it interesting and it kept my attention and it made me think in different ways. And uh, it made me, it didn't really make sense to me, the idea that God could create something from nothing. So I did kind of feel like Christians were missing the mark when they believed that God created everything from nothing. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty much right there with you um, where I didn't think it was a big deal, but I did kind of take that, that first law, right. Where it's like matter cannot be destroyed or be, or be created. And I'm like, well, look, we're the more scientific, uh, the more scientifically sound position, the more logical position. So I did kind of uh, take that as, as a, we're right and, and they're wrong, but it's not, you know, a make it or break it deal. It's not something to be horribly ashamed of being wrong about, but uh, what, what do you think, Paul? Yeah, I, I think it was, um, it was something that I kind of held to be important because of what Mormonism teaches about intelligences. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, you know, so, you know, without the, without a, a doctrine of creation ex materia for Mormonism, then a lot of the other theology kind of falls apart. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think when we get a little bit further into this discussion, um, we'll see that there's a lot of, of pieces that just don't fit together so nicely um, as it sounds when you, when you first start talking about creation ex materia, you know, at first it does sound, like a real logical thing, but there's a lot of details that come into it, um, which we'll get into. Um, Paul, uh, in your opinion, what does a creation done with intelligence that is actually made out of matter, what does that do to God's eternal status? Well, I mean, first of all, it means that that God is not the only eternal being, right? Um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna take the the Latter-day Saint teaching that um 
before we were born uh, into mortality, uh, we were spirit children of God. And even prior to that, uh, we were uh, autonomous intelligences. Um, then you're basically equating each of us with, with God, which is exactly what uh, Joseph Smith taught in the King Follett Sermon, right? That the, the mind or the intelligence of man uh, is co-equal or co-eternal with God. Um, and so what that does uh, for God's eternality is, like I said, it, may, it means that uh, each and every human being uh, ever born uh, is, is eternal as well. No beginning, no end, which is, um, you know, something that, that the Bible, re, uh, a status that the Bible retains for God alone uh, as having no beginning and no end. And so, um, but not only, not only that, it also places the universe itself, right? The created universe, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, um, galaxies, it places all of that uh, co-eternal with God as well. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal uh, it, what that does. Uh, let me just check my notes to see what else I wanted to say on this. Um, yeah, so there's a, um, there's a book I want to read a little bit from. Um, it's uh, Christian Theology, an Introduction by Alistair E. McGrath. And uh, he talks about a little bit about the development of the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. And I think it's something interesting to kind of touch on. So let me grab that quote and I'll give it a quick introduction as well. So um, I was just kind of brushing up this week on what what Latter-day Saints kind of tend to say about creation ex nihilo. And if you, if you go on like the, the uh, gospel uh, app, is that what it's called? Gospel library app. I think it is what their, their app is called now. But if you search for ex nihilo, you, you don't come up with a whole lot. You come up with a couple of references in uh, the recent gospel topics essay on becoming like God. And you come up with uh, a, a talk called the creation that, um, Russell M. Nelson gave before he was the president and prophet of the LDS church. And I remember reading that talk, um, man, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, and he talks, he, he kind of denies the, the, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. And they do that as well in the gospel topics essay. And one of the claims that they make is that this, this is a doctrine that comes to, comes to Christianity after the Bible. Right. And so the claim is made that uh, the Bible doesn't have a doctrine of creation ex nihilo, uh, and that the doctrine in Christian theology was developed uh, in response to the Gnostics. And so um, the way that's argued in the Gospel Topics essay is that they refer back to uh, a book on the creation ex nihilo by Gerhard May, um, who was a German theologian, and uh, the he wrote a, a lengthy book in which he, he argues just that point that, that this doctrine was developed as a reaction to Gnosticism, um, which, which is a dualistic uh, theology that early Christianity uh, dealt with. It's based on um, Platonic thought, uh, which, which has the universe being uh, eternal. So um, Alistair e. McGrath kind of touches on this. He says, um, he says this for Gnosticism in its, in most of its significant forms, a sharp distinction was to be drawn between the God who redeemed humanity from the world and a somewhat inferior deity often termed the Demiurge who created that world in the first place. The Old Testament was regarded by the Gnostics as dealing with this lesser deity, whereas the New Testament was concerned with the Redeemer God. As such, belief in God as creator and in the authority of the Old Testament came to be interlinked at an early stage. Of the early writers to deal to deal with this theme, Arrhenius of Lyons is of particular importance, a distinct debate centered on the question of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. It must be remembered that Christianity took root and then expanded in, in the Eastern Mediterranean world of the first and second centuries, which was dominated by various Greek philosophies. The, cent the general Greek understanding of the origin of the world could be summarized as follows. God is not to be thought of as having created the world. Rather, God is thought of as an architect who ordered pre-existent matter. Matter was already present within the universe and did not require to be created. It needed to be given a definite shape and structure. God was therefore thought of as the one who fashioned the world from this already existing matter. 
thus, in one of his dialogues, Timaeus, Plato developed the idea that the world was made out of pre-existent matter, which was fashioned into the present form of the world. The idea, this idea was taken up by most Gnostic writers, who were the, here followed by individual Christian theologians, such as Theophilus of Antioch and Justin Martyr. Um, and I think it's important to point out that the way this argument goes is that because there were some Christian writers who took up this, this idea, like Justin Martyr, uh, then the argument goes that, oh, see, the Christians didn't initially believe in creation ex nihilo. Um, but the point I want to I make of this is, is kind of twofold. One um, is that, you know, the, the charge that I often heard growing up as a Latter-day Saint uh, or read uh, from some of their most uh, studied theologians like James E. Talmadge and others, B.H. Uh, Roberts, is that um, Christian theology was corrupted by Greek philosophy. And that's why you have the doctrines of, of the Trinity, the doctrines of creation ex nihilo. Um, but what you see here with this doctrine in particular is that it's actually Latter-day Saint theology with regards to creation that is agreeing with Gnostic thought that is agreeing with Greek philosophy. So although Christianity, early Christianity, uh, bumped up against that in, in that, uh, that Greek culture and reacted to it, um, it was a reaction to it. It, wasn't accept, it, wasn't not, it was not an acceptance of Greek philosophy in this case. Um, and the other thing to remember is that uh, just because there were some Christian theologians who may have taken up uh, and, and believed the, the doctrine of uh, creation ex materia, like Justin Martyr, um, it's important to keep in mind that he was also, a, he was trained in philosophy, in Greek philosophy. So it's not surprising necessarily that he would take that up and, and, and believe it. But um, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo flows from scripture. Uh, and we'll get into that more later, but it, it, it is a definite truth that it flows from scripture. And so the, to try to make the argument that well, there were some Christian writers in the second and third century, late second and early third century, who didn't seem to believe in creation ex nihilo. Therefore, it's not in the Bible. Um, that's akin to saying, well, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone never really came about so explicitly as it did in the Reformation. Therefore, it's not biblical. Those two things don't follow. Um, the doctrines are either in the Bible or they're not. And I would argue that the doctrine of creation ex nihilo can be found in the Bible, even if uh, some early Christian theologians uh, presented the opposite view. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. I like how you said uh, that the LES Church is the one that is, you know, kind of embracing these Gnostic ideas. It almost seems like it's more of a restoration of Gnosticism. Um, and with the, the whole Greek uh, philosophy, you know, it's kind of interesting because Paul does say, you know, the message of the cross to the, to the Greeks, it's foolishness. Right. And that whole gospel message is influenced by uh, creation ex, ex nihilo, you know, so clearly something different was being taught. I mean, they wouldn't have thought it was so foolish if it if it just blended in with all of their philosophies already. Um, Matthew, I saw you nodding quite a bit while he was talking. So I'm guessing you've come up against some of these arguments before. Yeah, I was, I was actually reading an article from the 1989 January Enzyme where they're talking about all the restoration of all the major doctrines through Joseph Smith. And they're saying the exact same things that Paul were saying. Uh, this is written by Donald Q. Cannon, which I'm guessing is George Q. Cannon's son, Larry E. Dahl, and John W. Welch. And they were saying those same things. They were saying that original Christianity taught creation from ex materia, from something, and Christians later corrupted it through uh, Greek philosophy. Let's see. Two currents of thought may be largely responsible for the change in traditional Christian doctrine, Gnostic ideas, and Greek philosophy. Both Gnostics and Greek philosophers taught that only the spirit is pure and that body and matter are corrupt. It was therefore inconceivable for them to believe that material things could proceed from spiritual things. Because of such ideas, ex nihilo creation became a pillar of faith in traditional Christianity. This commonly accepted view of creation was what Joseph Smith challenged as he initiated a return to the view of earlier Christians. That's the end of that quote. So, yeah, this isn't something that we're just coming up with by talking to Latter-day Saints or something we heard. This is something they actually published in their enzyme in their official church magazine. So this, these are things that they've actually said. And what's funny, though, too, is like, like Paul, you're saying that um, it's kind of interesting that it's almost a, a little bit of projection. Because when you read other creation myths, like you read the Egyptian myths and you read 
the Greek myths and even Plato and uh, Lucretius, I think his name was, that they all believe that creation came out of pre-existing universe or pre-existing chaotic matter. You look at all these different creation myths, and I think even the Greek myths, they said that the, the, the universe was originally like a river or a sky or something, and so then everything was kind of organized into what it is now. So it's, it's kind of funny that they pin us as being the Gnostics or having this Gnostic view of creation when you could just as easily point them to, you know, ancient Egyptian or ancient Sumerian or ancient Greek, you know, ideas of creation. So it's just kind of funny that it's like, you know, the accusation is against us, but you could just just as easily use it against them. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Since we're since we're kind of talking a little bit about Gnosticism, um, you know, if you think about the Latter-day Saint. Uh, view of of cosmology, right? That um, there was a council in heaven uh, in which the plan of happiness was presented, um, and that plan was presented by Jehovah, right? Who would come to Earth as Jesus Christ, according to Latter Day Saint theology. And then a contrary view or a contrary plan was presented by Lucifer, uh, who would be cast out of heaven and become Satan. Uh, according to Latter-day Saint theology. Um, and his contrary plan was that he would ensure that every every spirit child of God would return to live with God again. Um, and he would force them, right? And it, it, there was a battle over agency, a war in heaven over free agency. Um, if you think about that, the Gnostics, as, as, I, as I read from uh, Alistair McGrath, the Gnostics believed that there was this demiurge, right? This, this lower deity, that created the evil world and the Christian Gnostics, uh, Valentinus and, and others, um, they equated that demiurge with the God of the old Testament. And so the old Testament was not, uh, the, the old Testament God was not the God that they worshiped. And so, um, if you think about, uh, so, so for, um, for Gnostics, there's this dualism, right? There's this eternal battle between good and evil, right? It's not, it's not the Christian view that God created man, God created angels, Satan rebelled as an angel, right? It's it's rather the view that there is this co-equal evil force in continual battle against, against God. Um, and as, as I think through Latter-day Saint theology kind of holistically, right? If you say, okay, everyone who was ever born was, a, was an intelligence, an autonomous being, uh, before God created them spirit children and then created them mortal. Um, if that's true, if that's the way things are, then what you have is a Lucifer or a Satan who is co-equal with God. So you're almost back in, in form to the Gnostic teaching that there's this dualistic co-eternal battle between good and evil. Um, you, I don't think a Latter-day Saint... Uh, theologian could claim that well, God is is all powerful over Lucifer. If Lucifer is an autonomous, you know, an eternal autonomous being, um, yeah. So I'll I'll stop there because I know we'll, we'll touch on more of that later. But just wanted to point that out. Yeah, and just to play <laughs> devil advocate here, I think that a Latter Day Saint probably would say that yes, God has power over Lucifer, maybe, but not over evil as a, a wider whole in the universe, because there's always going to be somebody in that role, in the Lucifer's role, once he's put away for eternity, like there's still going to be evil. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the things I want to touch on too, because you said that there's basically this this duality, there's always good, there's always evil. And uh, just talking about that question, does uh, creation ex materia do something to God's eternal status? And I think it's very hard to even say that God is eternally God if everything's created ex materia, because that means that at one point God was an intelligence, an autonomous intelligence who had to be formed by a higher being. Otherwise, he wouldn't exist. And uh, and he had no free agency until it was given to him. And it's hard to say that some sort of being in that form could really be God. So there was a point where he was not God, do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're spot on there. And when I, when I've had this conversation with Latter Day Saints and, and asked them, you know, how do you, how do you account for uh, how God the Father became God, right? Because 
they're they're kind of shying away from the teachings of King Follett. Um, they're shying away from the teachings of of Joseph Smith and the Sermon in the Grove, where he explicitly taught that the father had a father and and so on back and a grandfather and all of that, which you were just kind of talking about, Michael. Um, and the out that they kind of go to now is that well, maybe God the Father is the first God to have traversed the path of exaltation, right? But that doesn't really get you anywhere <laughs> because you, you know, you, you were saying, well, I think they would just say, well, of course, God, the father has power over Lucifer, but he doesn't necessarily have power over evil in the universe. Right. Well, if you're going to say that God, the father Elohim is the first to traverse the path of exaltation, what is, you know, what is to stop Lucifer from doing the same, right? They, they say that he's cast down and that he'll never receive a mortal body. But if, if, Elohim figured it out and is the first to do it. Why couldn't Lucifer figure it out too? You see what I mean? So it doesn't really get you anywhere. Another thing too, because I've never actually heard the the claim that Elohim was the first to traverse. I've heard that maybe the father is the first God, but I think the only consistent position to take there is actually the Christian position that the father was never created and was always God and never had to go through a a period of going to an earth because the second you say that Elohim went to an earth and had to progress, well, who was tempting him then? Because that says that there had to be an evil being tempting him before there ever was a God. And and whose atonement was he using if he was the first to undergo that? I mean, is that saying that he was completely sinless or I've never heard that before. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know that they go into all that detail. Um, I think they're just trying to, they're trying to, to, to back away from King Follett and the Sermon in the Grove. Um, but they're also trying to maintain creation ex materia, right? Because yeah. Joseph Smith clearly taught that we are all, um, we were all intelligences. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's why I say it doesn't really get them anywhere because really it, it, it places them almost at the Christian position, right? With it, to say that Elohim is the first God, Right. But at the same time, if if we are to become like him, it's a pattern that we have to follow. Right. So they have to maintain that he followed some type of path that we're going to follow as well as a pattern. Right. And they're always quoting uh, Christ as saying, I can do the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. And they'll say, yeah, it's because the father went through the same, the exact same thing. Um, right. But then yeah. to get out of the, to get out of the charge of, you know, there being other gods prior to Elohim, that's where they get, that's kind of where they go is, oh, well, he was the first yeah. to do it. It's a, it's a tightrope for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for them to be, to be walking on. Uh, Matthew, do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, it was a good discussion. I've, I've talked to a lot of Latter-day Saints that have tried to kind of reinterpret the King Follett discourse to try to make it sound like, Joseph Smith wasn't really saying that uh, God the Father hadn't always been God, that it was kind of talking more about Jesus and how, you know, when you look at Philippians chapter two, it says that he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. So they're, they're, they try to use that kind of equation that they're saying, well, it's not talking about God the Father, it's talking about Jesus and how he humiliated himself to become man. And it's not like he gave up his deity, but he took the form of a man. So he kind of gave up his exalted status. And I'm like, okay, but that's just Christian orthodoxy. That's not what Latter-day Saint prophets and apostles have taught for decades. And I'm like, so you're basically admitting that if that's the case, then the King Follett discourse has been completely misinterpreted by every LDS leader in the past hundred, whatever years. And he said, yeah, probably. So, you know, it's like you, you've either got to throw your leaders under the bus to, to accept Christian orthodoxy or you go full in, full in, but then at that point you've got serious issues. So yeah. it's kind of a, it's a cat. It's a tricky situation. Yeah, and the yeah. other the other challenge there, Matthew, is that if they're going to take that road, they they basically have to pretend that Joseph Smith didn't preach the sermon in the grove a few weeks later, in which he more explicitly said, "There's a father God and a grandfather God, and on back in an unending chain." Yeah. So speaking of tricky situations, you are listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry that is, hangry that is, hangry that is. 
We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. Um, one of the things Latter-day Saints are, are really uh, enthusiastic about is to go around saying that we are literal children of God. In fact, I remember teaching countless uh, lessons as a missionary to new investigators, and this would be one of the very first things that I would try to tell them is we are literally God's children, and he cares about us. Um, so I'm going to kind of ask you this first, Matthew, but kind of in regards to everything else that we've talked about, as far as being intelligence and being formed out of that intelligence, is it really possible for us to be literal children of God? Well, you have to start off with how do you define who God is or what it means to be God? And it seems like that's where we start off with completely different definitions as Bible-believing Christians versus Latter-day Saints. So it seems like, I'm trying to remember how I would have defined it as a Latter-day Saint. A God is basically someone who is an exalted celestialized and so this being has achieved exaltation they've achieved the fullness of salvation and these there are bruce Marconi said in his mormon doctrine he said there's an infinite number of these exalted beings and so when you think about it that way by their own definition you could create a god i suppose but when you define it in the 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 historical orthodox christian position that god is eternal is the only being that has self-existence within himself is unchanging he's independent he doesn't require anything for sustenance or for existence then there's no way you can create a god because god is uncreated so if you were to try to create a god it by definition would not be god because god by definition is uncreated so i think it really just depends on how you define your terms in terms of what you think god is and i think since we base our beliefs on what god has said in his word that there's no God before or after him, that, that that you cannot create a God. There's no God that's like him. There are gods, Elohim, or um, sons of God that are in terms of like heavenly beings, heavenly entities, but they're more like spiritual created beings that are subservient to God. But in terms of who God is and what he's like, he says that he doesn't know anyone that's even close to who he is. This is Isaiah chapters 44 through 46 in particular. So. Yeah, I think I've kind of run around in circles, but yeah, it basically define, depends on how you define what God is. So in that sense, I think by our definition, we can't be literal children of God, because if we were literal offsprings of God, we would be little gods. But since gods can't be created, then that's just not possible. Yeah, yeah. Really good feedback on that. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Yeah, I think Matthew's spot on. Uh, the challenge is, is to a Latter-day Saint is specifically uh, Joseph Smith's statement in the King Fallout Sermon that the, the mind of the intelligence or the mind of man is co-equal or co-eternal with God. Um, there's various ways that Latter-day Saint theologians and scholars have tried to define what uh, Joseph Smith and what uh, LDS scripture means by intelligence, um, whether it's from the King Fala sermon or for the, from the book of Abraham chapter three um, book of Abraham chapter three seems to present intelligences plural as uh, autonomous entities, right? I saw the noble and great ones uh, is what the what the book of Abraham says. Um, and, you know, just as an aside there, my, my patriarchal blessing uh, says I was one of those noble and great ones prior to coming here and that I was instrumental in casting Lucifer from heaven. So uh, Latter-day Saint awesome. theology definitely seems to con- consider uh, intelligences as maybe akin to spirits, um, in some ways, but, uh, when you have this idea that matter, uh, there's, there's no, what, what's the, what's the DNC passage you quoted Matthew earlier? Uh, there's, there's, there's no immaterial matter. Um, when you have that idea combined with this idea of intelligence, 
Um, I, I don't, I don't follow those Latter-day Saint thinkers who have tried to define intelligence as kind of like an amorphous mass of, of eternal matter from which uh, spirit children were created. Um, I don't know what that would mean on Latter-day Saint cosmology. Um, and I think most Latter-day Saints, when they think of what their, what their doctrine and teaching is on us being literal uh, children is that we're literal spirit offspring. What the mechanism is for that um, isn't quite clear, uh, especially if if Elohim is an exalted physical being. Um, so I think Matt, I think Michael, you've raised this this point in prior, a prior episode. You know, how does a physical being create a spirit being? Um, how does a physical couple, a mother and a father, God, create a, a spiritual? Uh, being that so yeah the whole idea of us being literal children of God I don't know where that comes from I would love to hear uh, a Latter-day Saint theologian explain that that mechanism to me uh, taking into account everything that's taught about intelligences yeah I think the the only thing that comes to my mind is you know I think it's in the acts uh, where Paul is quoting the the poet saying, even as your own poets have said, you know, we are the offspring, you're the offspring of God. And offspring is typically a, a pretty strong word for, you know, literal children. It doesn't actually come out and say it. And that's the only place I can think of. Um, and I've raised this a, a number of times in articles and probably here on the podcast where it doesn't make sense for two physical beings to create a spiritual uh, offspring. And it doesn't make sense that that offspring already existed before you even created them. Um, I mean, that's basically, if they're eternal and Mormonism is true, uh, that means that if I were to go to the celestial kingdom somehow, which is pretty unlikely, um, that my spirit children already exist in some form, even though I've not like been sealed or, or any of that, um, which means that they cannot possibly have both, you know, like... For any given person that cannot have both the father and the mother's DNA in it because there's freedom of choice and you don't know who's going to, to get hooked up with who. So how can they be uh, spirit children? Now on that note, one thing that did come to my mind, and this is just putting on my, my Mormon hat again, but uh, when we create children on earth, we are using preexistent materials. You know, our genes are forming another child, but those genes are inside of us. It's not something outside of us that we are uh, creating to be little children. So I do think it's very illogical and it's very, um, I think it's very problematic to, uh, to come out and say that we are literal children of God, because really not just, can we not say that we're literally his children, but the other thing is it doesn't even seem right to say that we're his children. Because we've always existed, we're eternal, and I'm I'm thinking that means that we're equal with God, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it is interesting that it's kind of giving a different definition of what it means to be a child. It's like kind of like how LDS believe that our spirit bodies pre-exist our physical bodies or our physical forms. So they're taking a spiritual entity and basically clothing it with flesh, and now you're now you're their parent, and it's kind of the same thing with. God, the father being our spiritual parent, he's taking pre-existing intelligences and reforming them, reshaping them into spiritual bodies. And now he's their parent. So it's kind of like a totally different idea of what it means to be a parent. It's, it's like taking something that already exists, like adding something to it or reshaping it or changing it. And then, and then it's something new now. And that's how you're, you're, it's, you're the parent. So it's, yeah, it's a strange, when you think about it that way, it's kind of, it kind of makes sense in their own logic and in the, in the internal logic, it kind of makes sense, but it's, when you look at it from the outside, it's kind of weird. Yeah, so it's kind of like when I take, you know, some fruits and apple juice and blend them together and make a smoothie, and I'm that smoothie's parent, and then I drink it. It's kind of kind of <laughs> twisted when you think about it, huh? Hmm. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to eat a home cooked meal again now that I know that that's my offspring. Uh, so when you when you when you say you're going to drop the kids off at the pool, it's literal. Uh, Anyways, <laughs> moving on. Uh, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to throw this question to you first, Matthew. Uh, kind of on the problem of evil. If God can only rearrange pre-existing material, can he truly eradicate evil? 
Yeah, I don't think he can. It goes back to what Paul was saying at the beginning of the discussion for the radio segment is that if if God created, if God didn't create from nothing, that people already existed. And I've and I've actually heard LDS use this argument. They say that God in, in Christianity, God is complicit in evil because he creates us from nothing. And so since evil exists, he's a, he is accountable for creating evil. But in their view, or in some LDS's view, since since we existed as intelligences and we have free will and free will can't be stopped and God gives us free will and protects that free will. Well, God is completely hands off. He has no complicity in evil existing. So they would say that that takes care of the problem of God being of being accountable for evil or why evil exists, which is called the Odyssey. But then you get into what Paul was saying earlier about this. It's, it, it is a very Gnostic idea that evil and good are just things that always exist and that they're just constantly combating each other. And there's no real clear winner. Even if God wins, then there still has to be opposition in all things. So evil still must exist. And if you believe it's one eternal round where we are supposed to become celestialized beings and we have our wives and we have spirit children and they are to fill our creations, our worlds, then yeah, I don't think evil ever can or will be defeated. It's something that just will continually exist for eternity. All right. Do you agree with that, Paul? I do. Yeah, strongly. And um, to, to maybe try to put a finer point on it, uh, trying to think how to, how to phrase this. So um, Matthew was describing this idea or this challenge that Latter-day Saints make, right? That, that God is somehow complicit in evil if he creates ex nihilo. Um, but I don't think Mormons are really off the horn of that dilemma. And here's why. Um, according to Mormon cosmology, God's plan presupposed that we would fall and that we would need a savior. So according to Mormon teachings, God foreknew that evil would be a part of this mortal probation that we're part of. And he created this world or fashioned this world or organized this world anyway. So they're right on the horns of that dilemma as well because he knew evil would exist here. Even if evil exists as a force that he cannot completely eradicate in the universe because he's not the ultimate creator of the universe, um, he created a world in which he knew evil would thrive and abound, and he created it anyway. So, yeah, they don't get off uh, the horns of that dilemma at all. Yeah, I agree. Um, they really don't. Um, I was looking at this verse in, uh, in Second Nephi chapter 2, and kind of something Matthew said stuck out where there has to be an opposition in all things in Mormon doctrine. So it's really here in Second Nephi chapter 2, verse 13, uh, in the Book of Mormon, it says, If you shall say there is no law, you shall also say there is no sin. If you shall say there is no sin, you shall also say there is no righteousness. And if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. And if there be no righteousness nor happiness, there be no punishment nor misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. Um, so basically, just this one statement here, um, if there is no sin, there is no righteousness. And that means that their, their God could not exist autonomously uh, by himself without the forces of evil and sin being there because there is no righteousness if there is no sin. And if there aren't, if there is no sin, wickedness and punishment, there is no God. Um, I mean, it explicitly says that right there. And so our view is a completely a, a different God than what their worldview can even fathom because our God does exist completely free of any need uh, for evil to exist. So it, it's not just that God created evil or created the world knowing that we would choose evil, but that the LDS God actually needs that evil um, to exist. It's a need that he has, whereas the Christian God does not have any needs whatsoever. I'll just add quickly to that. Maybe maybe they would say that that is speaking specifically of this mortal probation. Maybe they don't think that in an, an eternal sense that God requires evil to exist. I don't know. I'm just thinking of ways of how they might respond to that. Yeah, although it does still say there's no God, so it, it brings it up to that level, even if it's not directly talking about the eternal nature. So I, I think it still can be applied to that. I don't think they can really sidestep it. Um, okay, uh, Paul, 
Latter-day Saints sometimes say that if we are created ex nihilo, then God predetermines whether we will be sinners or saints. First off, does formation of intelligence sidestep this issue? And second, in your opinion, is Calvinism a logical byproduct of ex nihilo? All right, so two questions there. Does formation of intelligence sidestep this issue? Um, No, Uh, because like I was saying before, uh, on Mormon cosmology, God still foreknew that sin would enter the world. Presumably, he also knew the mechanism by which sin would enter the world. Uh, If one believes the Book of Mormon, he brought about the mechanism by which sin entered the world uh, by placing uh, two contrary uh, commandments before Adam and Eve, uh, which could not both be kept. Um, So no, uh, it doesn't sidestep the issue. Um, And then the second part of the question, uh, in my opinion, is Calvinism a logical byproduct of creation ex nihilo? Uh, No, (laughs) Um, I don't think so. Uh, Many, uh, an Arminian theologian would strongly disagree that creation ex nihilo results in Calvinism. Um, They would argue that, uh, a a classical Arminian theologian would argue that um, God creates uh, beings uh, and that he chose to create beings, that he freely chose to create beings in his image with free will. Um, and by giving them free will, he freely chooses to limit himself with regards to uh, forcing them to do one thing or another, uh, whether that is uh, to sin or to uh, choose uh, to believe in Jesus Christ. So, uh, yeah, no, uh, creation ex nihilo does not necess- necess- necessarily result in, my, my mouth hasn't worked all day today, uh, does That's not okay. necessarily result in uh Calvinism. Okay. So one of the points that, you know, I mentioned that I have an, uh, an LDS friend uh, that we talk quite often and he's really big into creation ex materia and he's strongly of the opinion. Uh, and I think a lot of Latter-day Saints are that if you embrace ex nihilo, then you're, uh, you've got to embrace Calvinism too, if you want to stay consistent. And his reasoning is um, that yes, God gave, may have given agency uh, to whatever he creates the freedom of choice, but in creating us, he's given us already our tendencies to either be, you know, wicked or good or obedient or uh, or not trusting of God. I mean, do you think that there's any truth to that or is that not a valid point? No, it's not a valid point because even, even on, on Calvinism, as I understand it uh, from my many conversations with my friend Matthew, um, even on Calvinism, Adam was created an empty vessel who had free will to choose uh, good or evil, uh, but was also innocent and and did not know good or evil. So, uh, so no, uh, it it doesn't necessarily lead to Calvinism because uh, even on Calvinism, God is powerful enough to create a being who is an empty vessel. All right. It seems seems uh, like they're, they're trying to equate Calvinism with uh, just hard determinism, which depending on how you define it, I think Calvinism is on a, on a certain spectrum of determinism in the sense that if you define determinism as God knows everything that's going to happen. So even classical Christian the, uh, theists would be somewhere on the deterministic spectrum. It would only be really open theists that could be able to say, we don't, God doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He knows all possible possibilities or contingencies, but he doesn't know exactly which will, will come to pass. So even Arminians and Calvinists, they, we believe that God knows what's going to happen from the beginning to the end. So it seems like they're, they're trying to say that, well, if God creates everything out of nothing, that God is a hard determinist that we're just going to do exactly everything that, that we were made to do. And we have no other decision, but to do what we're programmed to do kind of thing as if we don't have a will of our own. That's what it sounds like for me, you know, from my perspective. So I don't think that's really a, a Calvinist Arminian or, or any other kind of view. It's, it's, it seems kind of a misunderstanding of, of these various views because they don't believe that we're just hard determinists, in, in, which in, in other words means we're, we're puppets. We're puppets without a will of our own. So even Calvinists do believe that we have a will of our own. It's just that our will, the fallen nature of man, our will is a slave to sin, which is what Jesus said. He says you're a slave to sin. So, um, But we still choose. We still choose to sin. We still choose to indulge in our sins because that's our nature. 
and God has to change our hearts so that our nature is changed so that we will, that we will yearn after righteousness and after God and come to him in faith. So I don't know, just some thoughts I had on that. Okay. So that, that's your rebuttal to Paul. <laughs> I was hoping uh, for like a debate here, but okay. <laughs> no, no, not to Paul. I was, I was rebutting Paul. I think Paul did great. Okay. Well, uh, if, if there's any Latter-day Saints um, listening in, you just heard from a real life Calvinist, but that does not necessarily um, mean that Calvinism is true just because God creates out of nothing. So, And, and they heard from a real live uh, Calminian. <laughs> oh, wow. So you're, um, isn't there another word for, for something that's in between the two? Um, I mean, there's like three-pointers, four-pointers, Emeraldians. There's all kinds of names. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me let me just push back on a, on a Latter Day Saint that that makes okay. that claim. So, Michael, you and I have have talked on on the phone before about my experience going to a, a classically Arminian seminary and studying under two uh, theology professors who had both uh, studied uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, back before it went very liberal, um, and so they they were uh, trained in in uh, Presbyterian. Uh, theology. And so they, they understood well um, reformed theology uh, from the, from the more kind of Calvinistic side of things. And they, they taught us um, Arminian theology and they taught it, taught it to us in contrast with Calvinist uh, theology. Um, But they did so in a very charitable way. Um, And, you know, We've pointed it out many times, but I think it's worth repeating. Latter-day Saints will often charge that Christians are so divided. And and I mean, it, you, Joseph Smith even did it, you know, uh, in his uh, writings about the first, his first vision, um, you know, that, that uh, there's just pretended um, unity, right? Um, but that's not been my experience at all, uh, studying uh, for, for an advanced degree in biblical studies at a, at a Christian seminary. Um, it's not been, you know, there were, uh, with me studying in those classes, there were Calvinists who were attending, uh, that seminary, uh, because it was, uh, close to where they live and they wanted to get a higher, uh, level of, uh, either biblical studies or theological studies, uh, education as they prepared for ministry. Um, and I never experienced, uh, animosity in those classes between uh, students or between students and, and professors. Uh, I saw Christian love and respect and a willingness to dialogue with one another. And so that's been my experience on the Christian side. Um, and I just like to, to, to challenge Latter-day Saints uh, with regards to Calvinism to um, have, a, have that charitable attitude. Uh, don't don't buy into the oh it makes you robots or it makes you puppets kind of uh, cheap uh, uh, barbs that people toss out there because um, all the all those really equate to or are they're, they're akin to some of the cheap barbs that that like the new atheists throw at Christians right you believe in a sky god a sky daddy you know that that's what you sound like when you're when you're throwing out the puppet or the robot uh, charge so that's just my challenge to Latter Day Saints. That's great. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel. And if you like it, be sure to do lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. 
Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, Flyerflies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Word made flesh, the risen Son. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of the Lord endures